Welcome to the Call Your Next Witness podcast. Uh, my name is Brian Gibbons. Here with me also is Vivian Turetsky. And we are about to um, segue into our second part of the interview with Dennis Wade. It was apparent after interview one that we uh, needed a little bit more from Dennis uh, in terms of uh, we just didn't have enough time to get into everything in the first interview. And I think part one and part two went uh, expectedly went very well. Vivian, what do you think? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think we should maybe consider changing the title of this podcast to call your next witness, semicolon. It's always going to be Dennis Waite. <laughs> um, he has a lot to say, and he's so interesting. But really, anytime you get to talk to anyone who started their career prosecuting New York gangsters, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it was great stuff. And you know what we didn't really get into in the first uh, interview was a lot of the nitty gritty, you know, details about how Dennis became an insurance coverage attorney. And, you know, the, the takeaway that I had was just, you know, there's no shortcuts. You know, you got to read the policy, you got to read the case law that, that governs your jurisdiction. And then his point about actually talking to the underwriters who, wrote and sold the policy that makes all the sense in the world no i agree it, it was probably just the way he is as an attorney no matter what field he went into you you do the legwork you do the due diligence and he's obviously very precise and detail oriented and those are lessons for anyone's profession but you know it's it's great to hear how he started this career and this specialty yeah, it was great stuff. And, you know, usually in non-COVID times, you know, these 45-minute discussions with Dennis are over a drink or two after work, which <laughs> is not a thing right now. Hopefully, we're, we're trending in that direction, but it was nice to actually sit down and speak with you and Dennis. Uh, any, honestly, nowadays, anytime you get to speak to a couple of adults about anything is, is, is a welcome <laughs> respite. I agree. From, it's so rare yeah. these days. Yeah. Yes. You know, I, I said, was saying to someone the other day, um, I've got four kids and Vivian, you've got three. And we both signed up for that. We have no one for, to blame but ourselves for the seven kids. But the, the constant parenting, you know, 24 hours a day for however many months that I did not sign up for. So this COVID stuff needs to go away. Right. It could drive you to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, to, just to speak to some grownups. Right. Um, well, you know, it is my pleasure to talk to you and Dennis and it's nice to see your faces as well. So. Indeed. All um, good. All right. So folks, um, this is part two of our interview with Dennis Wade. Enjoy. If you listened to part one of our interview with Dennis Wade, it should have become immediately apparent that there was going to be a part two. And lo and behold, we have welcomed Dennis back to join us today. Dennis, how are you? Doing extremely well. 
looking forward to uh, the fall when we'll all be back together. Knock on wood. Indeed. Yeah, I just, I, you know, before we got on this call today, I just had a call with a, a lawyer association that I'm a member of. And we're talking about doing an in-person uh, conference in Chicago in August. Wow. And while everyone is cautiously <clears throat> optimistic, I think everyone is also just, you know, in COVID terms, August sounds like it's 10 years away right now. So ho hopefully by then, you know, herd immunity might be a thing and vaccinations will be uh, will be pretty universal, but but who knows? That's it. Just feels so far away to to think. You know, four or five months ahead. Um, well, Dennis, the one of the reasons why we wanted to have you back on was I think we left a lot of meat on the bone in your in our first interview with you, and one of the things that we had asked you about was just your general transition from the public sector after seven years at the uh, at the helm of the Rackets Bureau in the Manhattan DA's office into private practice and more specifically into the world of insurance. Um, putting aside why private practice, because there's a, a million reasons for that, what prompted you to get into the world of insurance initially? I think, as I mentioned before, Brian, what, what I had to sell uh, were trial skills honed over my experience as a prosecutor. Uh, I did not want to be branded as a criminal defense attorney, even though that's where my opportunities were. So I thought, I, you know, I would try my, um, my skills in, in the civil arena. Uh, my view uh, was that a trial is a trial, and um, trials are successful in large measure by who tells the better story. Uh, and I learned, I thought, um, you know, as a prosecutor, uh, that I could tell good stories. And I didn't think there was much of a difference between telling a good story in the civil context versus telling a good story in, in the criminal context. So, I, you know, uh, fortune to the winds, um, I, I, I decided to try my hand and it turned out to be uh, a very uh, interesting uh, adventure. Now. Along those lines, and I'm going to follow up with some other questions about some of those stories that you've told to juries at trial, either in the criminal or civil context, because, uh, you know, part of why we wanted to, to have you on uh, was because of just the, the wealth of stories that Vivian and I have probably both heard over a drink or two on occasion. Um, but before we get to that, I'm not letting you off the hook on the insurance stuff yet. Um, when when you went into the the world of insurance initially, you know, had you ever reviewed an insurance policy in a professional or or even in a personal context? Had you ever really reviewed the fine print of an insurance policy 
And as a follow-up question to that, how did you figure out how to do that? Well, you know, I can say as a personal matter, um, I had auto insurance policies, I had tenant insurance policies, um, I had, because uh, I had started a family, <laughs> you know, I had life insurance policies to, to make sure that the kids were taken care of. Um, and I never read a single word um, in any of the insurance policies. And I think that that's true. And uh, frankly, um, just a day or so ago, um, I was speaking to a general counsel who had uh, in his insurance policy uh, coverage for title disputes, but he had never read his insurance policy uh, and he had never, you know, tendered uh, a claim to his insurer for defense costs. But um, I learned the hard way by sitting down, reading the policy from top uh, to bottom, uh, and then gradually <clears throat> reviewing all the case law, uh, because there is case law interpreting across the country, you know, most most of the significant clauses in, insur in an insurance policy, whether they are conditions, warranties, or exclusions. So it really was the learning process. Um, and also, um, one of the things that I felt that was very important uh, and, and it turned out to be a, a, a profitable mindset is I wouldn't leave it just at, at reading the insurance policy. Um, I would ask to speak to the underwriter and ask the underwriter what he made of the condition, the warranty, or the exclusion. You know, what was his or her intent? So it was really a process of A, reading the English language, uh, and B, asking the underwriter what what he or she thought the condition, the warranty or exclusion meant and whether it applied to, to the facts. So I don't think you, and this is just my experience, you can leave it just at the words. You really need to understand what the intent was and ultimately, if the underwriter is put on the stand, what the underwriter is going to say about uh, his or her interpretation of this exclusion or condition or warranty and why it applies. So uh, in sum, that, that was my philosophy. It was a long uh, and I, I won't say tedious, but it was um, a very illuminating process, but it was a process. Now, you see, to any young attorneys listening to to this interview, um, it should be readily apparent that nowhere in Dennis's recounting were there any shortcuts. Uh, you know, let this be a lesson to you. Read the policy, read the case law that 
governs the the different provisions you're talking about. And then to go a step further, to talk to the underwriter, um, which it's almost like uh, researching a motion and looking at the legislative intent behind a statute. You know, not forget what the statute says because that's important. But why does does the statute say what it says? Why did you know? Why is the wording of the policy or the condition or the exclusion what it is? And you're not going to get that unless you go to the underwriters. Well, you know, Brian. For, further to your point, um, you know, the general rule across the United States is the, the policy term has to speak for itself. But I have found that if the wording that is supposed to speak for itself is combined with the history of the intent of the underwriters, it makes it much easier for the the judge or the jurist who's deciding the coverage contest to digest and and understand. Um, and then it also uh, helps being uh, a former uh, English major and English maven <laughs> in, in, in interpreting um, words and what they mean and the significance of the Oxford comma. Um, so it all kind of, my background kind of fit with this whole coverage world. Um, and, and, you know, my love of words, uh, my love of collaborating <clears throat> with underwriters, and also my love of telling a story. Um, because I, I, I think that the judges have to tell uh, or have to understand when insurers assume risks, uh, they've considered the risk, um, they've considered all the stories that go into creating the risk. So not only do you have to interpret the policy, you have to tell a story along with interpreting the policy. So that's, that's one of my predilection for drawing the underwriter into the conversation is uh, is paramount. Dennis, I can imagine that when you contact many of these underwriters, it may have been among the first times that an attorney was reaching out to them to get their take on whatever provision you were struggling with or that was pertinent in that moment. I, you know, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, underwriters, uh, you know, in many cases have inherited time honored wordings that they've never really given a lot of thought to. Uh, but I tell them when the rubber meets the road, you are going to have to be on the stand and you are going to have to explain why this particular warranty or condition or exclusion uh, bars coverage. And so you have to own it. Um, and I think they appreciate this con concept of ownership, that I have to own the position that I'm taking. And that, uh, that gets to another point that I think is important in the coverage world. You know, we as lawyers 
make recommendations. Um, but really, it's our clients who have to own the decisions. We don't make the decisions. We're advocates. So my whole message to the clients is, I don't write the disclaimer. Uh, I may help you draft it. Um, but you have to own it and you have to explain it. Um, because if we're going to persuade a jury or a jurist that you're right, uh, ownership is key and you have to own it. Yeah, to that point, if you have a claim representative on the stand defending their disclaimer letter to a jury and they say, well, this is what counsel told me to write, you know, that's that's not ownership. And that's going to whether the substance of the letter is gold or not. If the jury doesn't think you believe it, then they're going to think, well, why should I believe it? You know that and that goes whether it's coverage or defense or whatever that's just you know the that's human nature right there well better better said than uh, than i could it's really all about ownership uh our clients um whether you know whether on the defense side or on the cover side have to own the positions that, that they're taking we we can make recommendations we can identify issues um but, but they have to take ownership and, and they have to tell the story. We can help them shape the story, but, but they really have to tell the story um, if they want to convince the judge or, or the jury, depending on, on the nature of the controversy. Um, and Dennis, that's actually a perfect transition point because speaking of storytelling, uh, which is obviously a big part of what we look to do in front of a jury as trial attorneys. Um, you know, everybody loves the the courtroom drama, the, you know, whether it's a movie, a TV show, whatever, where there's a big dramatic moment. Whereas the reality of practice, there are not as many, you know, gotcha moments or big dramatic swings there's there's a lot less haymakers and a lot more jabs in the real world of trial practice but all that being said um can you think of any times in your career whether it's criminal or civil where there really actually were you know a big dramatic moment or two that that uh that jumps to mind there are many but um, I, I think the most amazing experience that I ever had was akin to what happened in The Verdict, uh, a famous movie by uh, Paul Newman. Any young trial attorneys, if you haven't seen The Verdict, watch The Verdict. It captures the uncomfortability of trial as well as any movie I've ever seen. Um, Plus, they should all know who Paul Newman is. Uh, right. The, the, uh, the salad dressing guy. And, uh, you know, I basically uh, think the um, Newman was, um, as portrayed in the movie, an alcoholic down on his heels. He was handling a, a med mal case. Um, 
And the, the critical issue was whether an OBGYN nurse had taken a history of when the patient had last consumed meal. Uh, because that, the answer to that question determined what procedure the doctors would follow. And this very young woman was told by the doctors to change her entry to indicate that her meal was not consumed within the last two hours, uh, but was consumed many hours ago. But this nurse cleverly, uh, and this is what drives the movie, kept a photocopy of her original entry before she changed it, uh, and she kept this. And so that was sort of the dramatic moment in the movie. Uh, Newman couldn't out this document, but he knew in his heart, in his gut, that the attorney would ask that one question too many. How can you be so certain <laughs> that she consumed food within two hours of the procedure? And of course, she opened her pocketbook and pulled out this piece of paper. Um, and, and, and so Newman won, happy ending to the movie. Um, but I had a case in which, uh, in, in fact, right out of the prosecutor's office, in which a young man lost his hand um, in a machine that um, took granulated plastic and crunched it with a piston into little pills that could be used in the recycling process. And um, the instructions by the company were, if the machine jams, disconnect the power, et cetera. But because of the time lapse between disconnecting the power, getting the machine to operate again, uh, it was just wasteful. Many of the employees ignored it and tried to clear the jam before the piston came down. So I inherited this case and, and frankly, the, the attorney who worked the case um, did not do a very good job. Uh, so one night, um, the foreman who worked the third shift, I got into a cab, went to Queens at midnight and said to the foreman, what happened? And he said, he just tried to time it. He didn't shut the machine down. And I said to the foreman, this is midnight. Well, how do you know that? And he reached into his drawer and pulled out a plastic pill with a hand imprint on it. You got to be kidding me. Now, and the only reason um, that the hand imprint could have occurred on the plastic pill is if he didn't shut the machine down and he just missed time when the piston was coming down. Oh, geez. But of course, the attorney who worked up the case had not revealed any of this in discovery. In fact, he had never even talked to the foreman. So we proceed to trial and I'm facing a dilemma. I mean, how do I get this pill in? But 
like Newman, I bet that my adversary would ask that one question too many. And that question was to the foreman, how can you be so certain that he failed to follow your advice in powering down the machine? At which point the foreman reached into his pocket and pulled out the pill. Unbelievable. And of course, all hell broke loose um, <laughs> with objections and screaming and yelling. Um, uh, but it was a defense verdict, so all good. So but good day in the office. My Paul Newman moment. That, that's so interesting from a tactical perspective, too, because, you know, the if the prior attorney who had been handling it hadn't disclosed that during discovery, had you tried to elicit that testimony and production of the handprint, you probably get precluded in, in some sense and it wouldn't have worked. Um, no, no, no question about it. But. This also gets uh, to the point, Brian, of one of the messages that, that you know I, I, I try to convey is, you know, in the insurance world, our instructions come from insurance clients, but there is no substitute for meeting with the client. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I went through this file, I said to myself, the attorney who worked up this case didn't meet with the foreman. Was it because he worked on the third shift and he didn't want to get up at midnight to go to Queens to talk to this guy? I, you know, I, I don't know. But, you know, I think one of the messages that um, I convey, and frankly, you know, WCM conveys as a firm is meet with your legal client and get the story from them. Because claim notes are all well and good, but unless you as counsel sit down and create a bond with your your legal client, you're making a mistake. Right, do the legwork and the facts are the facts, whatever they may be, you have to know them to deal with them. Absolutely. And, And when you do get to trial, having established that bond, they're comfortable with you. And that that that's telling because you're not just putting them on the stand cold. You've developed a relationship with them. They know where you're going. They 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 understand the whole dynamic because you've explained it to them. It's um, I, I don't know, telling stories 101. Yeah, it's an interesting know. point. Sorry. Um, Good. Good. But the the stories that you can tell about insurance coverage litigation, they really do rival, I'm sure, the stories that you can tell from your days prosecuting New York gangsters. And I think that's one thing people might not realize when they hear about what insurance coverage actually is. We have incredibly complex and fascinating stories that we have to litigate and investigate. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, coverage matters have as many twists and turns and and wild characters and stories and characters. Yeah. And unless you get 
dirt under your fingernails and really understand the nitty gritty of the coverage contest and how it evolved, you're doing a disservice not only to your legal client, but to the insurer who's backing your legal client with indemnity. So, you know, it's funny along those lines. Um, when I first started at Wade Clark Mulcahy and, and Dennis, you and I had spoken about, I think it was a jewelry fraud investigation that involved reviewing a BOP policy. And we were talking just generally about about the jewelry industry because I was pretty green in the jewelry industry in general. I hadn't even gotten an engagement ring yet. I was <laughs> I was I was a kid and having come from the DA's office in the Bronx where I was in the narcotics bureau. Uh, I was very familiar with how the drug trade worked and to anybody who's ever watched The Wire, you know, the high level drug offenders, excuse me, the high level drug dealers. What they do is they front drugs to lower level drug dealers. They basically say, hey, look, hey, you low level street corner drug dealer, you're going to sell this for me. And when you're done, you're going to give me the profits. You're going to keep some for yourself and you're going to give me any leftover product. And that was just kind of understood how the drug trade worked. And then I got to WCM. And Dennis, you explained to me how consignment works in the jewelry industry. And I remember immediately saying, this this sounds an awful lot like how drug dealers operate. And you you wouldn't think that, you know, the drug trade and the jewelry trade would would share similar characteristics. But this all goes to Vivian's point about, you know, even in the insurance coverage world that involves you know, reviewing fine print and reviewing policies, there are still characters that that can help you really tell stories that can, you know, just jive things up a lot more than you would expect. Um, and Dennis, one other thing that I wanted to touch on in terms of just trial posture in general um, and this is aside from the, the, the coverage side of things. Um, when you when you try a case, whether it's criminal defense coverage, whatever it is, when you try a case. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your method, um, because for me personally, if I know that I am going to be on trial, say next week. What I usually do is I like to write out my summation before the trial even begins, and then depending on how the trial goes, you know, adjust it uh, depending on the facts or depending on different rapport that I might have with jurors. Um, have you ever done you know something similar where have you ever adjusted a summation? based solely upon juror interaction or based solely upon something that may have just come up during trial that you hadn't really planned on? Well, I, I, Brian, I agree with you completely that in, in preparing for a trial, you have to first start out with how you want to close to the jury, what, what story you want to tell 
the jury and then you kind of back up from there in terms you know of 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 trial preparation i wrote an article uh, a long time ago you you know you referred to writing out your summation but the um article that i wrote um was entitled the dirty little secret and the dirty little secret was that if you organize your exhibits um, whether they're photographs whether they're statements whatever trial exhibits there are and you organize them and depending on how sophisticated the courtroom is you do a powerpoint you digitalize them you put them up on a screen you don't have to write anything out because the dirty little secret is the exhibits in the sequence are triggers to your mind. Yeah, it's as, like a table of contents almost. Your bullet exactly, points. As, 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 as you know, to what you want to convey to the jury. Mm-hmm. Also, um, although, you know, we've been- Dennis, limited- you've been doing this a long time though. Some people might still need to write it out in advance. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I would encourage people not to write it out because I think there's a virtue to spontaneity and I, I think the dirty little secret is the exhibits and, and the sequence are, are almost like writing it out. But I mean, set that aside. I mean, if if someone needs uh, to write out the intro, the segues, I mean, that's all good. Um, but to Brian, you know, but to Brian's point is we don't learn as much as we did when I started out in terms of jury selection, in terms of the background of, of the jurors. But um, sometimes you get an interesting fact. Some, someone is an English teacher, someone is a chemist, someone is an engineer. And I'm a great believer that if you can work in your summation an analogy that will appeal to one of the jurors in their special background, they will become a voice in the jury room to help explain what it is you're trying to communicate. You know, I've done any number uh of times in the past appealing to english teachers appealing to engineers you know appealing to uh people of other professions with with trying to come up with an an analogy that they will connect with and i also think it's important uh to try visually uh in in summing up a case to to make eye contact and with all jurors kind of their collective experience. So as many store, I I guess the point is if you can shape your story to to grab the attention of the background uh, and experience of a particular juror or or jurors, all to the good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Make friends and influence people. That's what it comes down to. Sales. 
you know, they, they, they probably give this same kind of thing in sales seminars. You know, you want to connect with your with your clients, with your customers. And and when you're on trial, that jury is, you know, they're your customers, um, you know, and you're selling yourself. The, the, the idea of jury selection, I've always thought was kind of a sham um, because it's, you know, if you really take a step back, and this is just, I'm going to pontificate here for a second. I think it's really condescending to think that you're going to talk to a group of strangers in an awkward setting and know how they're going to decide at the end of a trial after, you know, days, weeks of testimony. But at the same time, you can make them like you, and you can also get some tidbits, this is to Dennis's point, that you can use down the road, whether it's someone's profession or their sports allegiance or whatever. Um, now, now, if a jury thinks that you're doing that on purpose and you're, you know, and they're, they're, you know, looking through you, that might not help, but especially New um, Yorkers, especially New Yorkers. But if you can endear yourselves to, uh, to a jury and again, to Dennis's point about using analogies that, you know, that, that if you get that, that juror nod going, you know, we've all had that juror nod and you know, you're on the right track. Um, you know, that's uh, jur jury selection is the opportunity to, to lay the foundation to get that nod, you know, down the road. So but Dennis, you know, when you right. use a tidbit that connects with one of the jurors, have you selected which juror you're going to go for? Like someone who seems particularly engaged, taking a lot of notes? Yeah, I mean, so, sometimes you uh, instinctively see a bond, whether it's eye connection with a particular juror and you know their background and you try uh, in, in closing or um, in cross-examination to develop a line of questioning or an analogy that will re relate to them, uh, it's all good. Um, but you know, to Brian's point about jury selection, I had a very, very heavy case, three month bad trial, bad faith trial in California. And the client insisted on having a jury consultant, a PhD. And uh, she seemed uh, like a very switched on person, you know, who had done, read all the studies, etc. But I disagreed with all of her advice. <laughs> and Finally, she said to me, Dennis, what is your philosophy in jury selection? <laughs> I said, it's simple. I try to select jurors that fancy me <laughs> and reject go. jurors that don't fancy me. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. And you, you get this feeling, um, uh, you know, less and less as time goes on with, 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 with judges doing most of the questioning. Uh, but you, you, you get this feeling in New York County and other places where, you know, lawyers are allowed to question the juries, which, you know, who among the, the jury pool relates to you? Um, it's a vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, it's instinctual. Um, there's no magic. You just, it's, it's a gut feeling that 
this person and I, we'd get along. You know, we could have a beer together and enjoy ourselves. Yeah, and then the the next layer of that, and this is a little bit more just jaded and cynical, is if you have a juror who just, for whatever reason, is giving you a bad vibe, then the next question becomes, okay, how can I figure out a way to use a cause challenge on this juror and not waste a peremptory challenge? And that's where a lot of the, the gamesmanship comes up. But, you know, what, what's your cause challenge, counselor? Well, I don't know, but this woman seems to think I'm a jerk, and I don't want her here when, when, when deliberations happen. A um, bad vibe isn't, isn't a basis for a cause challenge? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wish. I wish. I'd have to I'd have to get a something a little bit more compelling than just a bad vibe. Um All right, Dennis, listen, this has been outstanding. This has been part 2. I'm not going to dangle part 3 at this point, but um I think this has been uh a much needed follow-up to our initial interview to delve a little bit more into the coverage stuff and into the trial the trial practice tips and tidbits and you know just some of some of the points about jury selection about summation and about cross-examination asking one question too many um so i just would like to uh, thank you for your time once again and for your uh, words of wisdom. You're here. Thanks, right. Dennis. My pleasure. All right.